Yeah, so Genesis 32. And it's the story of Jacob. He's on his way back to meet his brother um, Esau, whom he left some time ago. And he's not quite sure on the reception he's going to get. He's a bit fearful. And so he's taken uh, lots of presents for him to try and appease him. And he comes to a river. And from verse 22, he says, That same night he arose, took his two wives, his two female servants and his eleven children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and, had, and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And the man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, What's your name? He said, Jacob. Then he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore to this day the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. Yep, come up Murray. <laughs> it's just that I forgot something. Um, uh, down the aisle are our prayer and communication books. If you're in the sort of aisle seat, just pick them up, uh, pass them down the aisle. Um, there for prayer items or anything that you'd want to know about church. Uh, it's a communication book as well, so uh, put your name details in there and we'll follow you up. But before um, I ask Murray to come and preach, I thought uh, it would be good to pray for him uh, and for the word that he uh, preaches to us. So let's pray. Lord and God, Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for your word. We thank you for the passage that we could just read and that uh, you continue to speak to us through it and so Lord now as Murray um, expounds this word and preaches to us we ask for your spirit to speak through him uh, that your anointing would be on him that your spirit would be at work in us opening our hearts and our minds to hear your word so Lord we pray that you would speak to us that we would hear to hear you and we would respond in obedience we pray this in the name of Jesus amen Thanks, Len. Well, I want us to uh, look at this, this passage we've just read, and if you've got a Bible uh, handy, it could be useful to keep that open as we look at uh, Genesis 32, 22 to 32. I guess we've all um, seen those sort of dark scenes in a movie uh, where you, you can't really make out very much. It's, it's shadowy, it's murky, but you can see... Figures wrestling, fighting, um, grabbling, grabbing, do, doing something nasty in the shadows. And you kind of know that it's horrible and you know it's probably significant to the storyline, but you can't really see much more. 
And I think Genesis 32, the scene that we've just read, is a bit like that. It's something dark and shadowy and a bit hard to make out, but hugely significant. And before we look at it, I just want to say that I think dark scenes are actually a part of life. They're not just in the movies, and they're not just in some Bible stories. They're actually in our lives. It's part of being a disciple, even, that there will be dark scenes in our lives. Sometimes we're not just looking in at a dark scene going on and trying to make it out. Sometimes we have that sense that we are caught up in something pretty dark and horrible. Uh, I think there can actually be some pretty dark scenes in church life. Um, not in your church, but uh, I, I believe in other churches. Um, so I just wanted to fill you in on this. There are churches, you know, where, where actually there, there can be really tense, ugly meetings, undercurrents. Um, you, you have this feeling that something's going on and it's not right. There's, there's tensions and divisions and gossip. There can be pretty dark scenes in church life. There can be dark scenes in a marriage. A husband and a wife, there's, there's manipulation, there's tension, there's an atmosphere sometimes that you could cut with a knife. And there can just be dark scenes in our own hearts, can't there? Sometimes the dark, murky scene is actually in your own life, in your own heart. Maybe, maybe it's like in the movies where suddenly there's, there's just this brief flash of light and for a moment there's exposure of what's going on there in the shadows. And sometimes you might have had that, that fleeting exposure of what's actually going on in your heart and it's horrible and it's painful. I don't know about you, but I wish that in life there were no dark scenes. I actually even wish that in movies. I don't like those bits in the movies. I love it when it's the next scene and all of a sudden it's outdoors and it's bright and it's sunny and everyone's happy and whew, made it through that scene. And it's kind of like that in life. Like I wish life was always happy. My, um, my youngest daughter is 16. A couple of weeks ago she went to the Melbourne show with some friends and she came home and that evening like she just, she just rabbited on forever. She had had such a fantastic day. Really excited, had an amazing time, crazy rides, endless sugar, and she was just on a, on a high. But as I listened to her talk about her day at the Melbourne show, something struck me. And that is that in a way, the scarier it is, the better it is. <laughs> crazy scary rides, haunted houses, things leaping out at you in the dark. And the more terrifying it is, the better it is with hindsight. And I think in some ways that's actually true of these dark scenes in our lives. By God's grace, the reality is some of the darkest stuff turns out to be some of the best stuff. And we're going to see that in this very dark scene in Jacob's life. Here in this passage, uh, in this chapter, Jacob is actually preparing for the biggest day of his life. And that is not his wedding. Um, if you know the story of Jacob, he'd had a wedding, or two, and um, uh, that had been a pretty interesting day. But 
he's not preparing now for his wedding day. He's preparing for something which in many ways is bigger. He's preparing to go back to the promised land, back to Canaan, to meet his brother Esau. Twenty years earlier, he had deceived his brother twice. He'd stolen his birthright from him, and he'd stolen his ultimate blessing. And Esau was furious. Esau then was breathing out murderous threats at his twin brother Jacob. And Jacob fled for his life. Out of the promised land, out of Canaan, he went to a land called Haran. He worked there for 20 years for his uncle, a guy by the name of Laban. And during those 20 years, Jacob had continued to be true to form. Jacob is always a guy who has a plan. He's always scheming. He's always strategizing. He's often deceiving people. He's kind of dodgy, and he's, he's the master of manipulation. And for 20 years, he's been wheeling and dealing with his uncle Laban. And he's acquired wives, plural, children, flocks, herds. But now, God has come to him and said, Jacob, return to Canaan. Go back to your homeland. And so Jacob is heading back, and the reality is he's scared stiff. He dreads to think what's going to happen when he meets Esau again. So in the earlier part of the chapter that we didn't read, Jacob is desperately trying to prepare for this big day. Uh, he, he sends an advanced delegation to meet Esau. And, and Jacob is uncharacteristically humble in this. He's saying, oh, my Lord, Esau, your humble servant Jacob is coming to meet you, all this kind of stuff. But he, he's really, really trying to prepare the way. And uh, the, the group that he sends to meet Esau come back, and this is what they say. It's in verse 6. When the messengers returned to Jacob, they said, we went to your brother Esau, and now he is coming to meet you. And 400 men... Are with him. That sounds really ominous. It's kind of like you're at work and someone says, oh, the, um, the boss wants to see you in his office. And there are some policemen there. <laughs> like it really ups it, doesn't it? <laughs> this does not sound good. Esau's coming to meet you and there are 400 men with him. Uh, Jacob, Jacob resorts to everything. He, he divides up his people into groups. He's going to send them off in batches so that if the first lot get destroyed, he can perhaps protect some others, and he's going to be at the very back. <laughs> Smart thinking. Uh, he prays like you don't really, in the whole Jacob story, find Jacob praying. Earlier in this chapter, he prays, and it's a fantastic prayer. Uh, he prepares a gift for his brother Esau. In fact, you, you can read of what that gift was in uh, verses 15 uh, and following, or around, around 13 to 15. Here, I'll give you a taster. Um, he selected a gift for his brother Esau, 200 female goats, 20 male goats, 200 ewes, 20 rams, 30 female camels with their young, 40 cows, 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys, and 10 male donkeys. That's quite a gift. Like, you know, pop that under the Christmas tree. Um, I hope Esau wanted a zoo. Uh, because that's what he's going to get. So you can, you can see 
what's going on in Esau's head. He is pulling out all the stops. Remember, he's Mr. Manipulation, Mr. Sorted Out, Mr. Strategize. He's doing the works because he thinks the next day is going to be the biggest day of his life. But little does he know what is about to happen. There are two big things in the 10 verses that we've read, and I want us to look at them now. The first is this, <laughs> an all-night fight. An all-night fight. Jacob did not know that was coming. He sends a, the, the people across the river into the promised land. He stays back for that last night by himself. And so it's dark. He's the other side of the river from everyone else in his massive party. And all of a sudden, out of the dark, someone leaps on him. A man attacks him. We're not told who it is. But what, was Esau, uh, what was Jacob thinking? Like, is it Esau? Is it one of Esau's 400 men? Like, who is this? And Jacob fights. And he fights endlessly, wrestling, tossing, turning, grabbing, pulling. Jacob is fighting for his life. And he fights, we're told, all night. There's a very interesting word used in verse 24 as it describes this fight. It says in verse 24, Jacob was alone and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. And actually, the, uh, the Hebrew word used there is the word Jacobed with him till daybreak. Because Jacob means wrestler. Literally, it means heel grabber. So a man comes and attacks Jacob, and Jacob's with him until daybreak. But at some point during that night, Jacob must have realized he was not fighting a mere man. You get to verse 25, as it approaches dawn, we're told that the man who was fighting him touches Jacob's hip, and it is immediately put out of joint. With a mere touch, when this man wants to, he can dislocate Jacob's hip. He'd been holding back his strength. I think, through that night of fighting. A bit like um, dads perhaps do when they're play fighting with their little kids. Some of you have uh, been there, done this. I used to love it when my kids were small enough. Uh, I wouldn't, wouldn't try it now. But um, I used to love it when they were little and you'd have two or three kids leap on you and you're lying on the floor and they're jumping on you and trying to pin you down and you're letting them have a good go. And then when you're sick of it, you just roll over and squash them. <laughs> yep, that's the fun bit. And really, at the end of this night of fighting, it's like God rolls over and squashes him. Because what has become clear is that this man is, is God. Somehow, in human form, wrestling with him, fighting him all night. And then, as dawn approaches so that this fight ends and, the man, and, and Jacob will not see him, touches his hip and puts it out of joint. And Jacob still doesn't give up. That's a bit like the little kids, eh? You, you get to that point where you say, okay, that's enough now. 
no, no, it's not enough. They keep going, they jump on you again. No, 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 stop it, like quit. We're finished. And Jacob refuses to quit. And Jacob now is fighting not to win, but fighting to be blessed. Realizes that he's fighting with God, wrestling with God. And he says, no, I will not let go until you bless me. Well, what on earth is all this about? <laughs> like, what kind of God is this who attacks a man before the biggest day of his life? What kind of God is this who jumps on a man and cripples him when he's scared and praying and desperate and doesn't know what to do? Well, I want to suggest Two reasons, two very important reasons why God deals with Jacob like this. I think the first reason is God attacks him because Jacob needs to realize that his real fight is not with Esau, it is with God. It, it's like God is saying to him, Jacob, it is me you must wrestle with, not Esau. It's me that you must be blessed by, not Esau. It's my face that you must see, not Esau's face. Jacob, you've been wrestling with people all your life. You wrestled with Esau, you wrestled with your father Isaac, you wrestled with your, your uncle Laban, but it's me that you must wrestle with if you want to be blessed. Esau, the big moment of your life is not tomorrow, when you meet Esau, the big moment of your life is tonight when you meet me. I think that's one of the big reasons that God jumps on Jacob. The big thing for us always is dealing with God. But the irony is that we will never prevail with God. We'll never, if you like, win and succeed with God through our strength. We actually prevail with God in our weakness. That's one of the big themes and big clues to true discipleship. We prevail with God in our weakness. And so that's the second reason, I think, that God fights Jacob all night. He fights him to bring him to this point of total weakness. He dislocates him so that Jacob will cling to God desperately. Jacobing. Not to win, but to be blessed. And it's that, at that point, when, when Jacob is now in pain and clinging desperately to God for blessing, it's at that point that God touches not only his hip, but also his heart. And he asks Jacob a 
a heart-piercing question. He says, what is your name? And he replies, Jacob, heel grabber, deceiver, fighter, wrestler. His name really said it all. It was a painful confession. But it's that point of brokenness that is actually the turning point in Jacob's experience of God. And it often is, isn't it? Haven't you seen this? Maybe in your own life, maybe in the lives of other people, it's often at a point of brokenness that we actually start to find God and his blessing in a way that we never do when we're strong in ourselves. Earlier on the service, we sang Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And you know that that was written by a guy called John Newton. And the first half of John Newton's life, he was a wretch. He, was, uh, he had a godly mother, um, but his, his mum died when he was six years old. So he was really brought up by his incredibly profane father. And, and John Newton grew up to be a, you know, just a really good sinner. Like he, he was a, a drunken sailor, a debauched sailor, and um, just had a life of blasphemy and bad company and profanity and drunkenness. And it was one night at sea, there was this horrendously violent storm. And the rugged, rough John Newton was scared stiff. And after a night of bailing water and desperately trying to steer the ship, John Newton cried out to God for mercy. And he wrote years later about that night. This is what he wrote. That 10th of March is a day much to be remembered by me. And I have never allowed it to pass unnoticed since the year 1748. For on that day the Lord came from on high and delivered me out of deep waters. And he wrote a hymn later, Amazing Grace that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. He wasn't just making up some nice poetry. That was the story of his life. And it's often the story of people who've found God. It's as though God brings us to rock bottom. Or he scares the living daylights out of us. He robs us of all other hope. He forces us to cling to God and say, I won't let go till you bless me. And so in this story, God now renames Jacob. He gives him a new name, and his new name is Israel. God strives. 
All his life, Jacob had been striving with people. Now he's been striving with God and found blessing. Friends, isn't it true that often we find ourselves striving with people when we should be striving with God? Maybe you strive with your wife or your husband. You strive with your friends. You strive with your boss. You strive with your workmates. You strive with your parents. We strive because we think the big thing is winning the argument. The big thing is coming out on top. The big thing is getting the pay rise, getting the promotion, winning their approval, impressing them. The big thing is getting even. The big thing is proving ourselves. And so we strive with people. But you know, the big thing always is dealing with God. That's where our discipleship of Jesus Christ really begins, when we start striving with God and stop striving with people. When in our weakness and our vulnerability, we realize we desperately need God. And I think God often forces us to that point. He comes along and somehow he makes us weak. He strips you of your job, perhaps, or of your reputation, or of your wealth, or of your health. He knocks the stuffing out of you. He wins you. He weakens you so that you cling to him like you've never clung to him before. That is the strange but powerful grace of God, weakening us so that we cling to him. It's painful, of course. I absolutely hate it. But it turns out that the place of weakness is actually the best place to be. In fact, it turns out that the Melbourne show got it right. The scariest ride is the best ride of all. So there's this all-night fight. Jacob did not see that on the horizon. He thought tomorrow was the biggest day of his life. But actually, the all-night fight was. And then the next day. The second thing in these verses we're looking at, after an all-night fight, a life-shaping limp, a life-shaping limp. My wife and I always um, compare our nights in the morning. One of the first things we do, say, honey, how was your night? Did you hear the possums on the roof? Why did you get up in the night? So we, we do this little, um, little debrief. But I can tell you that in the um, nearly 30 years we have been comparing our nights, neither of us have ever had a night like Jacob's. <laughs> Think about it. He was attacked in the night. Not, not just a dream. He was attacked. He fought all night. 
His hip got pulled out of joint. And in the morning, he had a new name. <laughs> that is one crazy night, isn't it? <laughs> and in the morning, in many ways, he was a new man. We're told here uh, in verse 31, the sun rose above him as he passed Peniel. And that's actually highly symbolic language. It's, it's like, this is now a new day, and the sun rises on him. 20 years earlier, when he'd left the promised land, it was at night, he'd had a, an encounter with God, and the sun was setting. And it's as though the, the sun has, has been out for 20 years, and now the sun is rising, and there is a new dawn. And Jacob knows that he has experienced something quite exceptional. He, he knows he's met God. He knows he's seen God face to face. And he's, so he names the place Peniel, face of God. And then he limps off to the biggest day of his life. And there's a really interesting change at the beginning of the next chapter that I just have to highlight. He's now getting ready to go and meet Esau. And look at verse 3 of chapter 33. It says, He himself went on ahead and bowed down to the ground seven times as he approached his brother. Remember how before his plan was to come up the back, send off all the other parties, probably the, you know, the, the least loved wives and their kids first, and then the more loved wives and their kids, and, and Jacob up the back. But now the next day we see him limping at the front to meet his brother. Limping forward, confident in God's grace. And you know, really what Jacob experienced was to be a pattern for the nation that now took his name. His descendants would now be called by his new name, Israel. That they would never forget this incident. Every time they thought about their name, they knew what it meant. They knew that they were the nation who naturally strove with people, but in their weakness they were to strive with God and He would bless them. And just in case they did ever forget that, though, though how could they when that was their name, just in case, then every time they had roast lamb, they remembered because... It says at the end of this passage, they couldn't eat the meat around the hip bone when they ate meat. A perpetual reminder of this incident. Jacob's life kind of foreshadowed their experience. But in a far more profound way, Jacob's life actually foreshadowed the experience of his greatest descendant ever. The greatest descendant of Jacob. Hundreds and hundreds of years later was Jesus of Nazareth. And on the cross we see the darkest scene of human history. 
There Jesus wrestled with God the Father on our behalf. There he wasn't, he didn't just have his hip put out of joint. He was put to death in our place as the true Israel. There, in a sense, God attacked in him our sin, our selfishness, our pride, our manipulation and deception and waywardness. And Jesus refused to let go, refused to give up until he had won the blessing that was not for himself but for us who trust in him. And since Jesus did that, friends, the biggest issue in our lives is never how to sort out this person or how to win that fight or how to come out on top or how to prove yourself. The biggest issue always is clinging to Jesus in whom there is blessing. That's what every single one of us as a disciple of Christ is to do. And if you are not yet a follower of Jesus, I think it's the biggest thing to ever do in your life. In your struggles, cling to Jesus. In your weakness, cling to Jesus. In your desire a blessing cling to Jesus and nothing else I have a granddaughter one granddaughter she is a granddaughter and uh, she just turned one a couple of weeks ago a little bit before that she mastered two new skills you'll be very impressed she mastered clapping and the commando-style crawl, all in a week. Uh, she was clearly very, very proud of herself. But despite the absolute brilliance of this kid, uh, clapping and crawling all at once, um, the reality is she is utterly dependent on her mummy and daddy for everything. Leave her for a day and she'll be dead. And I think she kind of knows it. Because although she's super proud of the little things she can do, nothing makes her face light up like seeing mummy or daddy. Nothing makes her face cloud over like seeing her grandpa. <laughs> but then she sees mummy or daddy and she lights up. I was thinking about that and you know, I think all our plans, our careers, our money-earning capacity, our people's skills, our education, our sophistication, I think it's all really just advanced clapping and commando-style crawling. And we can be so very proud of it. But at the end of the day, what we need is to see the face of God who loves us 
and blesses us and makes us what we could never be by ourselves. And how do we see the face of God? <laughs> we see it in Jesus, in relationship with him. It's as we come to know Jesus, as we get to know him as a person, it's as we talk with him and walk with him and cling to him and trust him in everything that we see the face of God. And we realize that striving with God is way, way better than striving with people. I don't know how you are jacobing your way through life. I don't know how you wrestle and fight and manipulate and, and struggle. And I don't know what your weaknesses are. I don't know how God has come and crushed you and broken you and knocked the stuffing out of you. But I know this, that if you cling to Jesus in the midst of all that, you will be blessed. And you will see the face of God in an utterly life-changing way. And you can limp out of church today with confidence in God's grace. Shall we pray? Lord God of Jacob, God of Jacob, we come to you.